If you could, take out your Bibles, remain standing for the reading of God's Word, which will come from Joshua, chapter 2. The context will be verses 1 through 11. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan to the fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. This ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Forever. Let's pray. Father, we love your word. We love you because you first loved us. Lord, help me this morning to communicate your glorious divine truth to these, your people. Bless them. Give them ears to hear. Lord, may you bring the unregenerate this morning to saving faith. Those who might merely be religious but unsaved. Grant them the grace to believe. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, the book of Joshua, as we continue, um, is a record of conquest. It's the land that God promised to his old covenant people, where at this point in history is a 600-year-old promise. And as we have noted, this historical record um, is not primarily about Joshua. The book of Joshua, like any other book for that matter, is first and foremost about God. Fundamentally, it is a redemptive story about God. Now, redemptive history is a term that we often use here 
um, at Pacific Hope Church, it simply refers to the fact that the whole Bible is the historical account of Jesus Christ saving his people from their sins. Redemptive history. Um, the highlight of Old Testament books of the Bible is not even about ancient Israel. It's the mistake many people make. Israel's past is but the prologue for the world. The Lord's divine plans, um, they not only feature Israel, but also emphasize his purposes for the nations, for all nations. It will find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Now, while these Old Testament accounts, prophecies, and narratives were not written to us, they were written for us. Look, for example, at Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. What scriptures is it that Paul refers to as he writes the Romans? The Old Testament. So that, verse 6, with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, faithful preaching of the Old Testament must include the consistent pointing of God's people to Jesus Christ, who is the seed of Abraham, who is the son of David, who is a prophet like Moses, who is Yahweh's suffering servant. All Christ, who purchased the church with his own blood. And here in the book of Joshua, this Joshua points us to the greater Joshua. The greater Joshua. The name Joshua means the Lord is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. Jesus is the Greek version, right? Jesus of the Hebrew, Joshua. This Joshua points to the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our salvation. In Matthew 1, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now, as with all of Scripture, God is presenting himself for us making himself known to us. The living, revelatory truth of Almighty God, otherwise known as the Bible, the Word of God. So the question we need to be asking ourselves is what is it that God wants me to know about him? About him. For this is his revelation. Now, in chapter 2 of Joshua, um, God is not as obviously present as he was in the first chapter of Joshua. There, God is very much visible uh, with a major speaking part, if you will, in the redemptive drama. In chapter 2, um, God is not mentioned directly, yet we see his fingerprints 
everywhere. There's something he wants us to know about him here in chapter 2 in order to strengthen and encourage us as believers today. And we'll see that as we work our way through the narrative. So, but first, uh, by way of review, context, Israel has endured 400 years of affliction and bondage in Egypt. As prophesied in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, to Abraham, this land I'm promising to you, um, your offspring will not inherit it until they've been oppressed for 400 years in a land that is not theirs. And then under the leadership of Moses, they were given an exodus out of Egypt. They passed through the Red Sea into the Sinai wilderness and soon thereafter were brought up to the threshold of the promised land. Moses sent 12 spies into that land and only two out of the 12 believed God's promises that this land is yours, come take it. Two believed. The people of Israel believed the ten, so because of their lack of faith, they will wander in the wilderness for 40 long years until that generation, the unbelieving generation, passes away. Only two will enter the promised land. That is Joshua and Caleb, the two faithful spies. So here now, some 40 years later, Moses has died. The mantle has been passed to Joshua. And Joshua, at this point in time, is an 80-year-old man. 80 years old. With the pinnacle of his life's work ahead of him. Now think about it. This brother just experienced 40 years of very challenging ministry that is now behind him. Question, do you read anything about ministry burnout there? The brother's not looking to retire. You know, I think the retirement mentality in America, in our culture, has done much to cripple the church. When one checks out of work, oftentimes they, they check out a Christian service. That's simply a worldly manner of thinking. So those of you who have reached retirement age, that is in your profession and still serve us so faithfully, we salute you. We thank you. So here now, Israel, they sit poised, prepared on the east side of the Jordan River, waiting for God's signal to proceed. Now, this morning, we will look at the contextual content of verses 1 through 11, and then at the bigger picture in what it is that God shows us about himself and what it is he teaches us about himself. So that's the course which we'll take this morning. So Joshua, his commission was to lead God's people into Canaan. So having been given the charge, he now takes charge. Verse 1. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly 
from Shittim, saying, go, view the land, especially Jericho. Now, instead of publicly sending spies like Moses did in Numbers 13 and 14, Joshua sends these spies, notice, secretly. That is from the view of the people of Israel. And perhaps to avoid another episode of unbelief that they suffered 40 years earlier. So, verse 1b, they went and came into the house of a harlot of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there at the prostitute's house. Now, pause for a moment. This account indicates that Rahab's home um, was not merely some kind of a brothel, but was more likely an inn or a tavern which would put people up overnight, you know, provide a meal and um, other services if desired. And by the way, there is no hint anywhere in the narrative that the two spies took aim at, at Rahab's services, okay? They perhaps were thinking that if we go into this inn, we'll be able to eavesdrop on, on some of the local gossip, um, kind of feel out the, the, the climate of the citizens of, of Jericho. And remember, beloved, it is no secret that two million Israelites are camped on the other side of the Jordan. Amen? They're, they're well aware of this. You don't hide two million people or more. Now, Jericho was a, a land, we read, that was filled with um, date palms and um, watering holes, and it was surrounded, um, the city of Jericho was surrounded by two massive walls. There was an inner circle and an outer circle. This great walled city was thought to be um, impregnable, the most impregnable city um, in Canaan. And we'll get to that when we get to the walls coming down in a few weeks. But Jericho was positioned um, at the crossroads of, of trade routes and great road systems of the day. And here, um, in come two spies from Israel at night. However, the king of Jericho also had his spy network. It was in operation, and, and they, Jericho, detected these two spies. Verse 2. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And then notice a delegation was sent to Rahab's house, the, the last place these two brothers were spotted. So they come with orders for her to hand over these guests. And yet while they're knocking on the door, she hides them, these Israelite spies, and puts them into hiding. Verse 3. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who've come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the, the, the gate at dark that the men went out 
I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords. As soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now, perhaps you're familiar with the true story of Corey Ten Boom in the hiding place. Well, Corey Ten Boom would be the 20th century World War II version of Rahab hiding Jewish men in her attic to spare them from the authorities who were seeking them. Corrie ten Boom's father was a watchmaker. They were a Dutch Christian family in Holland who were hiding Jews in their home behind a wall in a space. Thus, the movie's title and the book's title, The Hiding Place. Again, it was in Holland, and most of the family, much of the family, were taken off um, to uh, uh, Nazi concentration camps. It's the story of, of Corrie ten Boom. Here for Rahab, if she turned these two men over to the king, um, she would likely have been rewarded. If she hid them, she would be committing treason against the king and against Jericho. Now, she hides them in stalks of, of flax. Flax um, was a plant from which you would make linen. So you would pull these things, they were about three feet long, these stalks, soak them in water, and then you'd lay them out um, on a rooftop, for instance, and let them, be, let them dry out in the sun. So she takes them up to the roof and hides them under these stalks um, of flax. Thus we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, by faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she welcomed the spies in peace in peace. Question, did these two spies just wander into this woman's inn because it was, you know, their lucky day? I mean, how did they enter the home of, of the one person who wouldn't immediately turn them in? They don't know this woman. They don't know the first thing about this woman. So what I want us to do now is to consider the providential ordering of God, because this is all about God, the providential ordering of God in this narrative. Amen? Good. How God weaves together all events for his glory and the ultimate good of his people. God works all things together for the good of his people. Friends, does that mean all things are good? Oh, no. No. But he works all things together for the good of his people ultimately. This is why we must walk by faith when things aren't so good. Witness throughout the house this morning. <laughs> okay, so these spies, okay, unbeknownst to them, had been connected to God's providential ordering with this woman by the name of Rahab, who's a prostitute, because of amazing sovereign reasons that God was working out in time. 
his sovereignly ordained, preordained plan being worked out in time. I mean, think about it. Information about Jericho was not needed. It was not required. Israel wouldn't conquer Jericho on the basis of information. We'll see that in a few weeks. Jericho, as we shall see, will be conquered on the basis of supernatural intervention. They won't lift a sword in this battle. Now, they will fight afterwards, but they won't lift a sword in Jericho. So God brings these spies to her door for two purposes, one that's immediate and another that is long-term. First, it is that so she will be saved physically from death. And secondly, she'll be saved salvifically, eternally, as we know to be true according to Hebrews 11. You'll meet her in heaven, your sister Rahab. Glorious, isn't it? Wait, you say. Does that mean that God will move heaven and earth, bring foreigners into a city that is about to be destroyed by God so that one woman will be saved? Okay, you mean to tell me that God will arrange geopolitical military events to save one soul, one woman who's a prostitute? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) This event, by the way, foreshadows another. When the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, does the exact same thing. John 4. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Jesus had to? He had to. Now, There were a couple of routes that one could take to get to Galilee from Judea. And Jews um, did everything they could not to pass through the half-breed territory of Samaria. Jesus had to. Why did he have to? Because he had an elect sheep who was residing there. That's why. The woman at the well. The woman at the well. Jesus said, not one of his sheep shall what? Perish. Not one of my sheep shall perish. So Jesus entered a Gentile village to save an immoral woman. A woman who had had five husbands and currently was living with a man who was not her husband. Jesus pointed that out to her. He says, "Uh, woman, go get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right in saying you don't have a husband. You've had five, and the guy you're living with now, you're shagging up with him, he's not your husband. You must be a prophet, she said. (laughs) He came to save an immoral woman, a foreigner, a half-breed in the eyes of Jews, Because he loves his sheep 
and he will not be denied of them. Now, in the same way, these two spies were sent into Jericho so this woman would be saved. Now, they they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know that they were part of God's great plan. And neither do we when we're sent out on a providential errand. Amen? Amen? Amen. But because these things were written for us, we can learn to see how God does work providentially, and we can begin to discern when his fingerprints are all over something, and he sends us out. So, needless to say, um, Rahab's conversion was truly an act of God's grace. See, look, like all the citizens of Canaan, she was under condemnation. She was doomed to die. God commanded Joshua to utterly destroy these people in Deuteronomy 7. Destroy them all. Any questions, by the way, about that? If God says destroy them all, that means destroy them all. We don't live by the sword these days, amen? We live by way of the sword of the Spirit. Our battle is unseen. It's not with flesh and blood. It's against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. So as I always say, therefore, don't change the message. The message remains the same. You don't mess with the gospel. This is truly an act of God's grace. They're doomed. They're about to be destroyed. Now, on the surface, right, from a human perspective, Rahab is like the least likely recipient of saving grace, saving faith, right? I mean, she already has three strikes against her. She has many strikes, but we'll we'll focus on three. Just consider this. Number one, she was a prostitute. Strike one, a harlot. Now, some commentators, believe it or not, will will try to soften this and say, no, she was just merely an innkeeper. Yeah, she was an innkeeper who was a prostitute. Let's be real. Hebrews 11.31 and James um, 2.25 make it clear and, and beyond contradiction that she was a harlot. She was a prostitute known to be immoral. She was red light in the window Rahab. Rahab, you don't have to turn on the red light, and no more does she have to turn on the red light. Amen? Sorry. At least there's, there's some people here who like to listen to rock and roll. I like that. Strike one, prostitute. Strike two, she was a Gentile. Or in the eyes of most Jews, as I said earlier, a dog. A a dog. That that was her largest liability and handicap in the eyes of any Jew. A Gentile who was a prostitute. You know, in Romans 3, when the Apostle Paul is concluding his argument, you know, that all men are guilty under sin in need of a redeemer, and he does include the Jews, of course. In Romans chapter 3, Verse 1, he said the benefit that the Jews had was that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were given the word of God. They were the covenant people of God. God revealed himself to that community. 
is a grace gift. At this point in time, Joshua, who sits upon the banks of the Jordan, has the word of God in his hand. He has the Pentateuch in his hand, the handwritten words of God in hand. He has the promise of Genesis 3.15. That is the promise of a redeemer immediately after the fall. He has the promise of Genesis 15 and 17 of the Abrahamic covenant that justification is by faith alone. They had been given the oracles of God. It was to the Israelites. Look at Romans 9, verse 4. It was to the Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all, God bless forever, amen. Rahab is a Gentile. She doesn't have the word of God. Think about this now. She does not have the word of God. No covenants, no promises, no hope of a redeemer. Rahab is the summation of Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12. Look at it. A people who are or were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God, in the world, strike one, prostitute. Strike two, Gentile. Strike three, she's an Amorite. An Amorite. Remember what God said about the Amorites 600 years earlier? It was for the reason that Israel had to wait some six centuries to possess the land because God said they had to wait, Genesis 15, because the iniquities of the Amorites was not yet full. Was not yet full. His patience, in other words, with this very corrupt and cruel people would reach its boiling point, and at this point in history, it's boiling over. Israel's war, Israel's call to conquer against the people of Canaan was the execution of divine judgment. The wickedness of the Amorites is boiling over. It was now full. Friends, Israel was not simply stealing the land of some, you know, innocent folk who were just minding their own business. Do we understand this? This is oftentimes how some people mischaracterize this biblical history. That God just went in and crushed innocent people. There was nothing innocent about them. There's nothing innocent about any of us, friends, in the eyes of almighty, holy, righteous, pure God. Do we understand this? Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have had to come. You could earn your own way. I get tired when I hear people talk like that. The Bible makes clear that the Lord was using Israel to judge a pervasively, pervasively and defiantly wicked people, and Rahab was one of them, an Amorite. Strike three. But 
This is another big but. Rahab had already heard of Yahweh's promise given to Israel. She heard about it. She knew that this supposedly invincible city, Jericho, would be destroyed, and she believed it. She heard it. She heard by word of mouth. So what does that show us, beloved? God was already at work in her heart, and he would send messengers to confirm her faith. He would physically save her, and according to his great redemptive grace, save her also salvifically. Because God went ahead of these spies to do a work in her heart. So what God wants us to know about him here is that he goes before his people. He goes before his people, promising not also his active presence, but also his advanced presence in the life, or I should say the lives of his elect, his sheep. That's how he worked in your life. You ever sit and reflect upon that, believer? I mean, if you've been a Christian for any period of time, more than a few months, you no doubt sit back and look back and consider how God's fingerprints were all over your life, sparing you in order to save you, to grant you the gift of faith to believe before you suck in your last breath. Now, in verses 8 through 11, we move to the providential ordering of God in that it reveals this confident faith that was born within her. I should say conceived within her. Verse 8. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord, that is Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, the covenant name of Almighty God, has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. Okay, that was 40 years ago, okay? News has been circulating for four, four decades. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed, when we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any, any man any longer because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and earth beneath. Now first, notice she, she heard the good news of God's deliverance. It's been circulating, right? She has this in. We don't know how old she is. She can't be that old because after all, we'll see that she eventually has a child. She grew up hearing this, how God, Yahweh, delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. No doubt by those who would pass by the end, that was the talk of the town constantly, um, all these stirrings of God's glorious, powerful work to destroy the seemingly undestroyable, the Pharaoh in Egypt. I know that the Lord has given you this land. I know this. Notice, she knows the promises of God and she believes them. How many promises is she aware of? Not many. 
The oracles of God weren't given to her or to the Gentiles. They were given to the Jews. She doesn't know many promises, but the promises she does know, she believes. Secondhand, thirdhand news. She believes it. She knows that the living God is going to give his covenant people the land of Canaan. And there she is in the midst of it. The promises weren't given to her, but she believed them anyway. Verse 9, and the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. Remember what God told Israel? I will go before you and strike fear in the heart of the nations. I'll strike fear into the hearts of the nations, and here it is on display. Verse 10. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. In other words, she believes in the dominion and sovereignty of Almighty God. She, she doesn't explain the splitting of the Red Sea away with naturalistic, nonsensical unbelief like many fools today do. Don't be a fool. When the Word of God describes the supernatural believer, you better believe it. Who are you, oh man, to question God? Let God be true and every man a liar. Humble yourselves. Amen. Now, the Canaanites were convinced that the Lord did indeed destroy Egypt. And again, without them having to lift a sword. They just walked out. Pharaoh's armies followed. They were all drowned in the same sea in which the Israelites crossed over. Verse 11, when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in heaven above and earth beneath. Now, friends, take note. The other inhabitants of Jericho, they heard about this. They heard about this. It struck fear in them, but this is like many today who hear about heaven, they hear about hell, they hear about judgment, they hear about damnation, they hear about the only way of rescue, they hear about salvation by way of the cross of Jesus Christ, they learn about, they hear about eternal life in Christ. We declare the fact that Jesus Christ died at Calvary because God will and must punish sin because he is holy. And when he laid the sins of his people on his son, he pulled out the sword of his justice, crushing his son, executing his son, because sin and sinners must be punished. Right? Yeah. Now some will hear that, shudder for a few minutes, as the residents of Jericho shuddered under the impending judgment of God, people will hear about the judgment of God and it finds its satisfaction in Christ alone. They may shudder for a bit and then go out and have some in and out and forget all about it. Word. Some may leave today. Well, that was heavy. Go have a burger and by tonight, 
you'll have forgotten all about it. That is for the unbeliever. That was the case with the inhabitants of Jericho, minus the in and out. Right? But Rahab was given the gift of faith. Did he just say given the gift of faith? Yes, I said given the gift of faith. Given. Given the ability to believe. Like Lydia in the New Testament. Look at it, Acts 16, verse 14. It was, notice, the Lord who opened her heart to see the truth, and it was the Lord who enabled her to do what? Respond to the things spoken by Paul. Now, once she saw it, her whole approach to life was radically transformed. She'd been given eyes to see. She was granted the gift of faith. Okay, now this same reality was bearing down on the residents of Jericho, but the light bulb only went on in the head and heart of one. Rahab the prostitute. Her mind and her heart were transformed. And then she took action. Then, again, then she took action. What was that action? Notice, she confessed Yahweh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater Joshua, as Lord and God, verse 11. And she had very limited revelation. Isn't this amazing grace? We just, we, we just heard, we just sang the words, amazing grace. This is amazing grace. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Christ is the word, amen? Amen. Faith comes by hearing. She believed the word of God. She was given faith, the gift to believe, and, and the promises of God. And this is Rahab. She goes, look, I know what nobody else in this town knows. I know what nobody who attends the temple of the false gods down the road knows. I'm the only one. I know that the Lord has given you this land, and I believe it. We'll see in chapter 6 that her house does not fall. We'll see that the instruction is that she and her family remain in the house or they will perish. You remain in the house of the Lord, in the covenant community, the new covenant community of God, or you will perish. Apostates will perish because apostasy, which is a walking away from that which you once declared, that which you once believed, means that you never believed in the first place. So keep yourself connected to the covenant community of God. For this is the place where God sanctifies his people by way of his word. Therefore, make sure you go to a church that preaches the word. Contrast Rahab, for instance, with the generation of Israelites who wandered in the wilderness and never entered the promised land. Think about what they experienced. They witnessed the parting of the Red Sea. They witnessed the smoke and the fire and the thunder at the foot of Sinai. They witnessed manna miraculously come down from heaven every day. They witnessed water that came out of a rock when they're dying of thirst. But they didn't enter in. Why not? Because seeing miracles doesn't give saving faith. Hearing and heeding the word of God 
It is by way of his word that comes faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. She heard it, she believed it. Albeit second and third hand, she believed it. Now, faith is, is only as good as its object, amen? Faith, again, is only as good as its object. Some people have faith in faith, right? Faith in faith, thinking that they can just make great things happen. Duh. Others have faith in lies, which is nothing more than superstition. They have faith in the false religions of Islam, Buddhism, Scientology, Deism, and agnosticism. Do all roads lead to God, after all, if you're serious and sincere? No. Why did Rahab believe and not others who heard these things at the inn in Jericho? Because Rahab, friends, was a recipient of God's particular, electing, sovereign, free, unmerited grace. Grace, unmerited favor. True saving faith, okay? True saving faith affects the whole personality. How do you know someone has true saving faith? Their whole personality has been affected. The mind is instructed. The emotions are stirred. And then the will acts in obedience to God by faith. That's how you know. Their desires for the Lord Jesus Christ. They have a love for the word. They may not be in the word every day. They may stumble and trip, get distracted, but at the end of the day, they know all the answers are right here. Listen to Hebrews 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God, being warned by God about things not yet seen. Okay, it had never rained in history up until the time of Noah. It never rained until the flood. Right? Being warned by God about things not yet seen, that's the mind being affected. In reverence, that's the emotions being stirred. He then prepared an ark. There's the will in action. Mind, emotions, will. Rahab's experience, very similar. Rahab knew that Yahweh was the one true God. Her mind was affected. She feared for herself as well as her family. That's her emotions that were stirred. And then she received the spies and pleaded for her salvation along with her family. There you have the will now exercised. That's how you know someone has faith that saves, which is a gift. Remember, these things were written for our instruction. Romans 15, 4, for wherever it was written in earlier times, it was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So Joshua was written for us to see, to detect the, the providential, salvific word, work of God that was here working all around Rahab's house long before these spies ever entered in. Isn't this amazing? Look, these spies were merely looking for a military advantage. And, and, you know, these spies weren't thinking evangelistically. 
It's not as though they entered in and said, you know, hey, Rahab, do you know that God loves you and has a great plan for your life? (laughs) Not at all. Yet, despite their intent, God was using them in the process to save this woman and to lead her to a deeper, greater place of dependence and hope with regard to salvation. And Yahweh, Almighty God, the greater Joshua, Jesus Christ. You know, she's saved by the blood of Christ just as you are. She looked forward by faith to the one promise. We look back by faith and up to the living, resurrected, ascended Christ. So it wasn't by accident, in other words, that these spies just stumbled into Rahab's inn when they came to spy out the land. They came to Rahab's house because God had a purpose from eternity past for this woman. Beautiful. We love sovereign grace, do we not? So he's drawing this woman to himself. He's going to redeem her. Obviously, she'll be rescued physically, but only as a symbol of the greater uh, greater redemption that will occur in her life and then through her life, as we shall see in just a few minutes. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, God already had you in his mind's eye when Christ shed his blood for you, Christian. Right? The salvific love of God. Because recipients of grace understand grace because grace is for the guilty. Grace is for the guilty. It's for the people who know they're guilty. Redemption is for the ruined. Mercy is for the miserable. Imputed righteousness is for the rotten and those who know they're rotten and need grace. That's why when someone, hey, how you doing? Much better than I deserve, man. What do you mean by that? Let me explain. (laughs) Rahab was a cursed woman in a cursed city. She comes from a cursed people who stand at this point in a cursed condition, dwelling at present under the wrath of God, and in the midst of it all, she alone obtained mercy. One sinner, saved by grace, put on display for the glory of God. Look at John 3.18. Whoever believes in him is not what? Condemned. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who believe that Jesus is the only way, he's the truth, he's the life, no one comes to the Father except through him, your faith and trust is in him and him alone, you've repented, you've turned from your rebellion, you've turned from your unbelief, you've turned to Christ, you believe, and you know that it's his righteousness and you need to get to heaven. There's no condemnation. No condemnation. But, whoever does not believe, is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That's why we know from 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I'm the chief of sinners, Paul said, and he's come to save sinners like me. 
Why did Rahab receive mercy? Was it because of anything in her? Of course not. Anything she did? No. Only because God set his love upon her to choose her and to save her. Same holds true for you, Christian. Beautiful. So Rahab is proof that those who enter heaven do so not because of their ethnicity. It's not because of their national identity. It's not because they find themselves in the right place at the right time. And it's certainly not because they're better than others. Rahab was a prostitute, an active prostitute, God called her. What did Jesus say? Look at it, Luke 5. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Friends, do you understand the biting irony of Jesus' statement there? He said, I have not come to call the righteous. Friends, there is no one who is righteous. Only those who think they are. Only those who think they're righteous. So he's breaking down the artificial categories of works, righteousness, religion. That's his point there. It's not the fact that some are righteous and some are not. No one righteous. There's no one righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Wages of sin is death. There's only the category of those who think they're righteous, and as I've said a hundred times, a thousand times, to think that you're good enough to stand in the presence of God based on your own merit is the epitome of self-righteousness. Repent today, if that's you. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, sinners who know they're sinners and need a Savior. That's who. Okay, now as we wrap up. This text serves as an invitation. If you're not in Christ, and at this point in time, God has revealed to you that you're not in the category of righteousness, that you're a sinner and you're in desperate need of a Savior, today, the command is to repent and come to Christ, and you shall be saved from the wrath that is to come. Because when you take your last breath outside of Christ, you'll be cast into a place that Jesus describes as outer darkness, where there's wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth because you've rejected my son who bore that punishment on the cross in the place of many sinners. If you'll entrust yourself to me, he says, in the fact that I have provided a righteousness for you, you shall be saved from my wrath because I poured it, up, poured it out upon my son. So it serves as an invitation. Secondly, this text also serves as a warning to those who've heard and heard and heard and heard the gospel over and over again, and yet you remain in unbelief. Rahab only had third and fourth hand reports about Yahweh and his promises. Some people sit all their lives under the truth of the gospel and God's promises and they fail to believe. They fail to entrust themselves to Jesus Christ and Christ alone. They've gorged on the word of God. They claim to know it so well. They can recite all these Bible verses and even doctrinal truths, but they refuse to repent and believe in the gospel. They continue 
in doubt and unbelief. How great will your condemnation be if you do not repent today? I'm terrified on behalf of those who grow up in the church. They hear the gospel. They've heard it all their lives. They can recite it. They know all, as I said, they know Bible verse after Bible verse, and they do not walk with, they do not trust in Christ. Oh, greater will your condemnation be because you were given so much. Don't let that be you. Now, this text is also a call for those who have saving faith, those who are believers. This is a call for those who are believers to take your stand with the people of God. There is this, none of this business of just me and Jesus. Amen? Just me and Jesus. No, you're part of the body of Christ. We're called to stand with God and the people of Christ. And this Rahab, with this itty-bitty seed faith that she has, stepped away from her countrymen, stepped away from her king, stepped away from her people, to stand with the one true God and his people. That's our call exposing herself to punishment had she been found out. <laughs> Amazing grace. See, true saving faith, beloved, true saving faith always means a break from worldly allegiances and loyalty to the one true God and his people, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not to fear the ridicule of unbelievers, because you will receive it. The world will mock you at home, in your neighborhood, at school, at your workplace, but you can't have Christ and refuse to identify publicly with him and his people. So come out of the closet today, if that's you. Trust him by faith. Proclaim him by faith. I know the workplace is difficult because I, I speak with many of you and I pray on behalf of you constantly. I can't imagine the nonsense you have to put up in the workplace today with secularism and humanism. It's invaded everything. I talked to three of you this week. We do pray for you. Now, finally, we said there's short-term deliverance. She'll be delivered from the destruction that's to come physically. Um, Long-term is salvifically. She's saved. We know that her name is in the hall of fame of faith. But the greatest long-term providential purpose of Rahab's salvation was that she had to be saved and preserved for a much, much greater purpose in order to fulfill the messianic line of the Lord Jesus Christ. She was ordained to be an ancestor of the promised Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. God saves sinners through the blood of Jesus, and here even a Canaanite prostitute is saved. Her family will be saved, and she will go on to marry an Israelite man. They will have a son, this prostitute, who was a believer and brought into the covenant community of Israel. She marries, she gives birth to a son by the name of Boaz. Boaz is her son, who's the great-grandfather of King David, 
a lineage that leads and gives birth to the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see in the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew 1, verse, 15, verse 5, the name Rahab. She had to be saved. God had to save her because this is part of his plan. Ordained in eternity past. One writer puts it like this. Jesus chose Rahab the prostitute to be in his family photo. <laughs> there was no duct tape over her image. She shines with the glory of God's grace. Is part of the lineage of our glorious Savior. So God used Rahab, the prostitute, to lead her whole family to salvation, as we'll see when we get to chapter 6. And God can use you, friends, no matter how far you've fallen, no matter how far you've fallen, to be a witness of the power and the grace and the goodness and the mercy of Almighty God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. That is of God's glorious gospel grace. Reminded, as we will be next time, of the scarlet cord of redemption running throughout all of Scripture right into our day and our time, this moment, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And the scarlet cord we'll see dropped out of the window from which these men escaped. Next time. Looking forward, as she did, by faith, we look backward and upward this very moment to the only one who saves sinners, those who know that they're sinners in need of a great redeemer, and there's only one, and here he is. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Father, we do thank you for this, this hour of biblical exposition. We do thank you for the glorious gospel of grace that saves sinners like Rahab, that saves sinners like me, the chief of sinners, sinners like Paul, sinners like this congregation. We rejoice in grace. We rejoice in the finished work of Christ. We rejoice in the fact that we're covered by the blood of Christ. And we're rejoicing constantly that we've been raised in Christ and that there's a seed in heaven for us all because of Christ. Bless these, your words, to the hearts of your people, we pray in Christ's name. Together we say,